Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Comparisons are a, uh, are a helpful way to, to navigate the unknowns of life, aren't they? If somebody is unfamiliar with a different type of food or a new music artist or a new show on Netflix, it's helpful to make a comparison for them, isn't it? Well, you've never had Vietnamese food. Well, it's sort of like Chinese and it's sort of like Thai food, but it's its own thing as well. Comparisons like this can be helpful in introducing the unfamiliar to somebody. But sometimes you just cannot compare one thing with another, right? It would be unhelpful, for example, to describe the Rocky Mountains to somebody who has never seen them by using a freeway overpass as a point of reference. Well, it's like an overpass, but just taller. That doesn't quite cut it, does it? In that case, making a a comparison between the Rocky Mountains and the freeway overpass is completely unhelpful. Uh, In that regard, the Rocky Mountains are simply incomparable. And in the book of Micah, one of the main themes, one of the main messages that emerges is the incomparability of God. Micah says that there is no one or nothing to whom you can compare God with because the Lord God Almighty is holy other, so completely incomparable with anything in this created world. Micah is one of the Old Testament's minor prophets, we call him. And he's not minor because uh, he was insignificant or things like that, Uh, but he's minor in terms of the size of book that he left. And there are 12 such minor prophets in the Old Testament. You find them at the back of the Old Testament, right? Right before the book of Matthew, you've got all of these hard names that you struggled with during confirmation to memorize, right? Um, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. I think I got them all there, right? Um, And so we're going to look at just one of those today, uh, Micah. And before we dive into our sermon text this morning, and before we even dive into the book of Micah as a whole, I want to lay out a bit of background uh, for you about the book of Micah. If you haven't already, open up your Bibles, turn on your phones, find the book of Micah there. Micah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. He was from a small town called Moresheth, which was probably located near Gath. And Gath, of course, was the uh, Philistine hometown of a certain giant named Goliath, right? And Micah lived outside of, a, outside of that town in a small village. And he, he ministered there in that small town, in that small village. Many of the prophets of Israel and Judah ministered at the capital city, but Micah ministered to his small rural hometown congregation and and, uh, village in that regard. And and Micah tells us in chapter 1 that he lived and ministered during the reign of three of Judah's kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. 
And uh, that, puts, uh, that puts Micah somewhere around 740 to 700 B.C., so about 700 years before Christ. And it also means that he and a guy by the name of Isaiah ministered during the same time, right? You've heard of Isaiah. He's got a big book in the Bible. Micah had a small book in the Bible. And uh, Micah also lived to witness the nation of Israel fall to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. and their subsequent exile. During Micah's day, the same Assyrian army came knocking on the doors of Jerusalem as well. But the Lord in his mercy stayed Judah's exile for the time being. So again, if you haven't already, find the book of Micah. We'll be reading the closing verses of this book and the beautiful promises that the Lord has for his hurting people. And in these verses, Micah is urging God's children who are, again, teetering on the edge of disaster to forsake their idols, to return to the Lord in repentance and faith because Micah knew that the Lord delights in showing his love and he is full of mercy and grace for the broken. So would you rise with me as I read Micah chapter 7? We'll be looking at verses 18 through 20, reading in Jesus' name. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for this morning and this chance to gather together and to study your word. And thank you for this uh, message that you gave to the people of Israel and Judah uh, 700 years before you sent Jesus, so 2,700 years ago. And Father, this word is still relevant and true for us today, and we ask that you would lead us and guide us as we look at it this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And before we unpack this amazing promise in these verses, uh, again, we need to put it in perspective with the rest of the book of Micah, just like we spent a little time and put Micah in perspective of the whole Old Testament. We need to put these specific verses um, this closing promise in perspective with the rest of the book of Micah. Uh, and so hold on tight. We're going to do a survey of the whole book of Micah, all seven chapters, this morning. <laughs> uh, the first thing we need to know about Israel and Judah during Micah's day is that they were plagued with problems of their own making. In Micah chapter 1 and 2, along with the spiritual commentary that we find in the book of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, it, it highlights Israel and Judah's idolatry and their rampant wickedness during this time in history. Uh, idolatry, of course, is the worshiping of other gods, lowercase g, gods, and putting something or someone ahead of or before the Lord God. 
Soon after Israel took possession of the promised land, they began to worship the gods of the nations that were around them. They were particularly fond of worshiping the Canaanite deities of Baal and Ashtoreth and Moloch. Israel had become very polytheistic in its religion, worshiping the Lord God and one or all of these other deities. But this, of course, is a very clear violation of the first commandment that the Lord gave the Israelites, right? Remember the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. There isn't much wiggle room for worshiping other gods in there, is there? Uh, And the Lord is very exclusive in whom we are to worship, and it's him alone. But God's people violated that command so often and for so long. And Israel and Judah's worship of idols and false gods really reached its peak, its pinnacle, around the time of the prophets. And again, those books of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, give a, a spiritual commentary on the state of Israel during that time. And, and each king that it mentions, with each king, we're told how well or how poorly they did. The kings of Israel and Judah were judged by how they treated the idols in their nation and whether they tore down those, those shrines or whether they tolerated them. One of the kings that reigned when, when Micah was alive was a guy by the name of Ahaz, King Ahaz. He ruled for about 20 years, kind of in the middle there. And listen to this description that's given of King Ahaz from 2 Kings chapter 16. Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even burned his own son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And Ahaz sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Sounds like a nice guy, huh? The kind of guy you want leading your nation. (laughs) I don't think so. Uh, Whenever you read about the high places in the Old Testament, it's a reference to the pagan shrines, the pagan altars that had been set up on the top of hills or mountains, probably because you were closer to heaven then, right? As close to your deity as you could be. And Ahaz worshipped at these pagan shrines and encouraged Judah to do the same. God had said to worship at the temple, but Ahaz says, worship wherever you want. Probably the worst offense that Ahaz was engaged in was child sacrifice. And I think you caught that as I read through that Second Kings passage there. Child sacrifice was, was part and partial of the worship of the Canaanite deity Molech. Children were sacrificed alive to this god, hoping that the deity would bless the crops that were grown, or rather ironically, the, uh, the womb of a woman. And Ahaz, Judah's king, was encouraging the worship of Molech. And he was actively engaged in himself in that worship by offering up his own child as a sacrifice. That's the guy who's in charge. That's the guy who's leading your nation. And fortunately for Judah, they did have a few good kings here and there. Kings who turned their people's hearts back to the Lord. And in fact, uh, Ahaz's own son, Hezekiah, happened to be one of those good kings. 
the story was different, though, in Israel, in the northern kingdom. It was all bad news, really, from day one. Following Solomon's reign, right, there was that civil war that split the nation in two. And every one of Israel's kings, from Jeroboam on down, was bad. Jeroboam had, had set the nation on a downward tread by making two golden calves, similar to what Aaron did after uh, Moses went up to the mountain. Jeroboam made two golden calves and said, These are your gods. Worship them. And Israel did. He also engaged in pagan worship in every corner of Israel. And king after king after king of Israel followed in Jeroboam's bad footsteps. There's there's nothing but negative reports for each one of those kings. And the Lord sent his prophets, guys like Isaiah, guys like Micah, to return the people to the worship of the one true God. But they didn't listen. They continued to worship the Lord God and the other gods. So let's transfer this thought to today. Idolatry, at least in the way we think of idolatry today, bowing down to a statue of wood or stone or, or, or brick or worshiping at, at, at the church on Sunday and then going to the mosque on Friday or, or offering your child as a sacrifice for good crops, that, that form of idolatry doesn't exist at large here in the United States, at least not that I'm aware of. <laughs> but we still do have other things that take the place of the Lord God in our lives, do we not? There are still other gods that are worshipped. In his explanation to the first commandment, Martin Luther described what it means to have a God and to worship that God in this way. Luther said, A God is that to which we look for, for all good, and in which we find refuge in every time of need. To that which your heart clings and entrusts itself to, I say that is really your God. And so with that definition of a God in our minds, it's, it's a lot easier to see how society worships things other than the Lord God, right? When the going gets tough, where do you look for support? Where do you look for good to flow from, for, for justice to be delivered, for, for blessings to arrive? Do you look to your family for those things? Do you put your hope and your trust in the government to provide them or your friends? Does your heart cling to that little rectangular block inside of your purse or your pocket or that you're holding right now, right? Do you find your validation and your worth in, in the approvals that others give you, the, the likes or, or the shares on social media? Does your heart cling to something that you do? Maybe an instrument that you play or a sport that you're engaged in or a game that you play. Does your heart entrust itself to the fact maybe that you have a certain career and are known in a title, in a role? If so, those things have become your God. Those things, however, cannot hold a candle to the Lord God. They fail to satisfy. They let us down eventually. Family can disappoint. Friends let you down and disappoint you. The government is so fickle, I don't know how anybody can look to it for for good or find refuge in any time of need. And the likes and the validations from social media, they come and go as fashions and trends change. Your skill at a game or a music or an instrument or a sport ebbs and flows. Your career might change in an instant. 
None of those things can satisfy. None of those things are to be worshipped. And the Lord knows that. That's why he's charged us with worshiping him alone. He will never let us down. He will never let us go. His love for you never changes. And that's why he's so jealous for your love. He doesn't want to share the spotlight with anything that would disappoint you. He alone is to be worshiped. Israel and Judah had had another problem that really flowed from their idolatry. They had a problem of rampant wickedness. And their problem with idolatry and abandoning the Lord God led them to, to abandon all of God's laws and in some cases take up the laws of the nations around them or in some cases no laws at all. And this is what, if you read the second chapter of the book of Micah, that's what the second chapter of the book of Micah is all about. The rampant wickedness as, as Israelites and, and people from Judah are oppressing the poor and seizing farms and fields that don't belong to them. We don't have time to look at all of that, but it's sufficient to remember and to take warning that Judah's idolatry led them to worship false gods, gods of their own design, and eventually really began to worship themselves as God. Look out for number one. Look out for yourself. But Israel and Judah failed to recognize that their actions of idolatry and rampant wickedness would have consequences. Often your actions have consequences, don't they? You do A and B, logically, naturally, follows. When Serena was just learning to crawl, she, like most kids, I suppose, loved houseplants. But more specifically, she loved the dirt in the bottom of the houseplants. (laughs) And she would crawl over, pull out the dirt, and spread it out over the floor. And we, like most parents, I suppose, uh, objected to that kind of behavior. <laughs> and since she was less than a year old, you couldn't exactly sit down and ration and reason with her. Um, but we did discover very, very quickly that she did not like the vacuum cleaner because we'd bring out the vacuum to clean up the mess she made. And she did not like the noise of the vacuum, so she would crawl to the other parent uh, and just sit there and cry as we cleaned up that mess. And eventually she learned that her actions, the, the pulling out of dirt, had consequences the vacuum will come out (laughs) actions have consequences right and israel and judah's action their idolatry in this case had consequences too and in this case the consequence was judgment the lord god used pagan nations and their pagan kings to bring about consequences for Israel and for Judah's actions. Micah said this in chapter 1, verse 16. He said, They, your children, shall go from you into exile. That's Micah chapter 1, verse 16. Already, as Micah ministered, the nation of Israel was in spiritual decline. And not only spiritual decline, but decline on on a geopolitical level as well. Judah and Israel had already become vassal states of of Assyria, meaning they paid him tribute, they paid him honor, they swore their loyalty and service to Assyria. But shortly after that, Israel tried to rebel, and uh, that rebellion failed miserably. They were subdued, they were conquered, and then eventually taken off into exile into a foreign nation. And the prophets like Micah, like Isaiah, rightly saw this as God's judgment upon Israel. And Micah also prophesied Judah's decline and Judah's eventual exile as well. But in a, in a surprising turn of events, it, it wouldn't be Assyria, the current world power, that would carry the, them off into exile. Micah said that it would be 
Babylon that would carry Judah off into exile. Chapter 4, verse 10 paints the picture this way. Micah says, Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. And when Micah lived, it's important to remember that Assyria was the world power in the ancient Near East. Babylon was at that time... uh, a nation that Assyria had conquered, had subdued. Uh, They were small fish at that time. But yet Micah knew that Babylon would rise and would be used by God to execute judgment upon Judah for her sins of idolatry and rampant wickedness. That's a pretty rough message, but Micah didn't have all bad news. Micah also gave a glorious promise. That's the third part of your outline there, a promise of, of restoration They would be judged, yes, but they would also be restored. We won't take time to look at all of it, but that's the the message of 4 and 5 in Micah, the promise of restoration. Um, I mentioned Micah 4.10. The second half of that promise gets to this restoration. It says like this, You will go to Babylon, but there you shall be rescued, and there the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Yes, the Lord says, you will face the consequences for your sin, but that will not be the end. The Lord will rescue and will redeem his people out of Assyria and out of Babylon. And the Lord did so, right? Seventy years of exile in Babylon, the Lord's people returned to Jerusalem, rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the wall, rebuilt their nation. And then there's another promise in Micah 4 and 5 I just want to mention real quick. And this one's maybe more important. And this verse uh, and the promise attached with it is probably one of the more famous verses in Micah, mostly because it gets quoted during children's Christmas pageants. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come one forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of of old. Remember that verse from Christmas pageants? Maybe you had to say that when you were a little kid, right? In this verse, Micah predicts and prophesies that a ruler, that a king, would come from the city of Bethlehem. And even the early rabbis, when they read the book of Micah, they saw this as a messianic prophecy, a prophecy pointing forward to the Messiah who was to come. And the promised redemption wouldn't just come in the form of a physical nation, the promised restoration would be a spiritual restoration culminating in the, in the person and in the, in the work of Jesus Christ as he gave his life as a ransom. But before those promises could become reality, Micah in chapter 6 and 7 delivers a reality check. A reality check. That's what chapter 6 and 7 are all about. Well, well, there is that promised future restoration coming for God's people. In the meantime, Israel and Judah still struggled with sins. They still struggled with idolatry and rampant wickedness. And in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, Micah says this. Uh, listen to these verses. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Micah says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn son for my transgression, the fruit of my body 
for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah knows that there is nothing that he can do to earn God's favor and God's grace. And so he presents this escalating list of things that, that could be done uh, and brought to the Lord. He begins with the, right, the prescribed offerings that God had said, you know, bring a calf a year old, things like that. But in and of themselves, the offerings aren't enough. And even if he increases the offerings to, to thousands of rams, he says, or 10,000 rivers of oil, it still wouldn't be enough to earn God's favor and God's grace. Micah says that the Lord wouldn't even be satisfied if Micah gave his own children as a sacrifice for his sins. Nothing we can do to earn God's favor and God's grace. And so what does Micah prescribe? A simple formula. It's really a summary of the Old Testament law as well. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. That's it. Those three things, right? They can't earn us God's favor and grace, but as his children, he calls us to live by these simple commands. He says, do justice. The United States is on a a justice binge right now, right? Uh, Demanding justice for actions that have been done. We want to see rights that have been wronged. It's been over a month since the death of George Floyd, and there are still protests and riots and statues being torn down and autonomous zones being established, all with the intent, uh, the original intent, I think, of seeking justice for a dead man. And many in America and across the world have rightly sought justice, Seeking justice, doing justice has become second nature for many. But it seems as if when we are seeking justice, we've often left behind the second and the third part of that simple formula. Love kindness. Walk humbly. Kindness is a lost art, isn't it? It's a forgotten trade, especially in 2020. We've become so polarized by masks and riots that we've nearly forgotten how to simply be kind to one another, helping others out when it does not benefit us, doing what is good and right for somebody else, being considerate of their needs and showing them love and care and concern. Kindness is a lost art, and I think we'd do well to relearn how to be kind to one another. But if kindness is a lost art, then humility and walking humbly is a dead language, (laughs) hardly used today. Humility, the act of being humble, is seen as weakness, as a handicap. Humility flies in the face of everything that culture teaches us. Those who are humble are often steamrolled by the arrogant, leaving us only to judge the humble as weak and incapable rather than their true characteristics of being meek and gentle and kind. And in 2020, everybody is an expert in every major issue as well, right? In uh, January and February of this year, we were all experts in presidential impeachment. If you can remember that ancient history that happened in January and February, our president was actually impeached. Do you remember that? (laughs) It seems like so long ago that that happened, but it happened, right? Then COVID hit, and we all became epidemiologists overnight. 
Uh, we seem to know everything that there is to know about viruses and, and how they transmit and the best way to prevent them, right? And then in the last month or so, we've all become overnight experts in, in race relations. And there's no humility among us or our leaders. There's no willingness to say, you know what? I honestly don't know. Let's sit down and talk about this together. Unfortunately, any act of humility is perceived as weakness. And then in politics, that translates to less votes, and then you don't get into office the next year, and it's a downward spiral from there, right? But this is exactly what God prescribes for his people. Do justice, yes, but at the same time, love kindness and walk humbly, especially with the Lord your God. And if we could maintain those three simple commands, the the church and our nation would be a much more wonderful place, I believe. And finally then, uh, in our survey of of Micah, we come to our sermon text for this morning. (laughs) Micah has observed firsthand Israel's and Judah's problems. He's witnessed and prophesied the, the consequences of those actions. He's told of God's promise to the Lord's people. Micah's given them a, a reality check and a simple formula for living. And after observing all, Micah comes to this conclusion, and it's a, it's a beautiful one, and I think you would agree with me in that. Here in these closing verses of his book, Micah writes a hymn to God's compassion. Look at these words again with me. I know I read them before, but I want to read them one more time. Micah says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Micah's hymn begins by pondering the the uniqueness and the incomparability of the Lord God. Who is like you, O Lord? And there's no one like you, O Lord, Micah reckons. The gods of the nations are idols, mute wood or stone or metal that cannot hear or think or act. But the Lord God, he is the one true God, the creator of the universe, the God who hears, the God who thinks, the God who acts on behalf of his children. And then Micah goes on to praise some of the things that the Lord God does for his children. One of the things that Micah mentions is that the Lord pardons iniquity. A pardon is a, is a pass, a wiping away of wrongs. And in our context, we usually think of pardons uh, in connection with our presidents, right? That's one of the powers that we have granted the president of the United States is to pardon crimes that have been committed. And usually that's done right before the president leaves office. Uh, The president has it, again, within his power to erase the conviction, to restore a person to civil rights. And Obama, President Obama, did this 212 times. George W. Bush did this 198 times. Bill Clinton issued nearly 400 pardons. And while those numbers might seem to be high, uh, get this, Woodrow Wilson pardoned nearly 2,500 people and FDR over 3,600 people. All right? Those men and women who received presidential pardons had their convictions erased, completely wiped away. And in the eyes of the United States government, it was as if, if those crimes had never been committed. 
It's the same way Micah says between us and the Lord. Our iniquity has been pardoned. Iniquity is one of those words we only really read in the Bible. Iniquity is a synonym for sin, but, but it's, iniquity is, is sin accelerated, sin magnified, sin glorified. There are, there are three different words that the Old Testament often uses to describe the breaking of God's law. Sin, transgression, and iniquity. Micah used all of those here in these three verses. And aside from being simple synonyms, there are some distinct differences between them. The differences between these three, sin and transgression and iniquity, has to do really with our own attitudes. Sin is defined as simply missing the mark. It's, a, it's an archery term, right? You, you, you tried to hit the target, but you missed, right? You tried to live your life uh, marked by love for one another, love for your neighbor, but this time you, uh, you simply failed by cursing out that idiot who cut you off in traffic the other day, right? <laughs> you failed. You missed the mark. Transgression, then, is a deliberate rebellion, against the command. You know the boundary line, but you trespass or you transgress against it. You know that you are supposed to love your neighbor, but instead you deliberately do not demonstrate love uh, by not offering to help them when uh, it's fully in your power to do so, right? It was a, it's a willingness. It's a, it's a deliberate rebellion. Iniquity then here, what, what the Lord God is pardoning, is a, is a twisting or a perversion of the commands of the Lord. Iniquity is deliberately taking what God has made and twisting it, perverting it for your own end. You know that you are supposed to love your neighbor, but instead you are financially supporting those engaged in sex trafficking. <laughs> Iniquity is a twisting, is a perversion. And Micah reminds us that God is a God who pardons, who wipes away, who expunges us from all of our iniquity. And Micah also says that God passes over our transgressions, that rebellion, open rebellion against the Lord and his commands. Yeah, Micah says, for the sake of his children, God has passed over it. That's Exodus language, right? Where the Lord God passed over the houses of the Israelites that had the blood of the lamb sprinkled on the doorposts. The Lord God passed over, noticing that the lamb had died instead, uh, had been sacrificed for that family. And the Lord says uh, through Micah uh, that he passes over the sins and transgressions of his inheritance, his children, not counting your sins to you. Micah also says, and I love this, that the Lord does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. We've all had times in our lives when we were just plain angry, aren't we? We've had those people in our lives too that were just angry at and sometimes we can't even remember why we are supposed to be angry with them maybe it's because of an old insult or an old family feud that happened generations ago but nobody can remember what was said or done you're just supposed to be angry at those people who live over there right or maybe you remember quite perfectly what your spouse said to you last night that made you so angry and even though they've repeatedly apologized you just cannot seem to let it go and to forgive them right that's us that's our human nature but that's not the lord he doesn't stay angry forever. He is quick to forgive. Why? Because his, his primary response and feeling towards us is one of steadfast love, covenantial love. He delights, Micah says, in showing it to you. He gets all kinds of, of giddy when he gets to show you his love. 
And then Micah reminds us in verse 19 that the Lord will again have compassion on us. Like a, like a mother who hears her child crying in the night and reaches out and has compassion on him, the Lord will have compassion on us when we cry out to him. He will hear our cries and he will act. And then Micah says that the Lord will tread our iniquities underfoot. This is victory language. The Lord is conquering our iniquities, walking over them in victory. And then the Lord does something even greater with our sins. He casts them into the depths of the sea. The bottom of the sea is one of the most remote places on earth. Mankind has visited nearly every square mile of ground up above uh, the sea on land, right? But the, below the surface of the sea remains relatively unexplored. It's remote. It's far away. And in many, many cases, it's very, very deep. Uh, the Mariana Trench is located in the Pacific Ocean, south of Japan, north of Papua New Guinea, and it's the world's deepest point. Uh, scientists believe that it's nearly 6.8 miles deep. All right, 6.8 miles deep. Think of that, right? Uh, put it, think about it this way. If, if Mount Everest started at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, the top of Mount Everest would still be a mile and a quarter below the surface of the sea. That's how deep the Mariana Trench is, right? Uh, the bottom of the Mariana Trench is so remote that the same number of people have been to the bottom of the Mariana Trench as have been to the moon, did you know that? There are 12 men who have walked on the moon, and there are exactly 12 men who have been to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, men and women. Um, and up until 2019, only three people ever went down to the bottom of the sea, to the bottom of the ocean. But in the last two years, nine different people visited the trench. And I found this interesting as I was looking this up because I kind of like this random things, that this month alone, June 2020, there have been four different excursions to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Four different individuals have gone down to the bottom this month alone. Kind of, kind of interesting, right? All that to say, right, it takes the right people, the right funding, the right equipment to go to the bottom of the sea. It is remote. And the picture that Micah paints is of God's total and complete forgiveness of our sins, casting them, hurling them into the depths of the sea to one of the most remote places on earth. It's, of course, figurative, right? There's not a box of my sins piled at the bottom of the sea. There's not a box of your sins piled at the sea, right? But what Micah is getting at is that not only the Lord God is, is putting our sins out of sight, but he's putting them out of mind, out of reach, out of existence. Our sins are gone. And this is a beautiful promise that the Lord has made to his people through his prophet Micah. It's wonderful, isn't it? These people who have messed up so much and so often that they've been taken off into exile in a foreign land have just been reminded how much the Lord God loves them, how much he is willing to forgive them. Could you imagine being in their shoes? Generations of idolatry and rampant wickedness, exiled for your sins, but yet despite all of it, God still loves you. He is merciful and gracious in the midst of it all. Do justice, Micah says. Love kindness. Walk humbly with the Lord your God. Live your life simply and live it in, in repentance and faith in the God who loves you. 
And in faith, Micah says, look forward to that Messiah, that ruler who is coming for your deliverance. And if you do, Micah says, the Lord will abundantly shower his grace upon you, his grace and his mercy. Who is a God like you, says Micah. And you know what, the believer, the, the best part of this is we have these same promises, the promises of our iniquities being pardoned, being trampled underfoot, our, our transgressions being passed over, our sins being cast into the remotest part of the sea. We have these same promises of his compassion and his patience, his delighting in love with us, his faithfulness to us, and we have them and we have them made more sure through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross in our place and on our behalf. Because as Christ hung on that cross, God the Father was transferring the sin of the world, your sin, my sin, to his beloved Son. Jesus bore the penalty for your sin, taking that punishment, taking the consequences that you deserve, that you earned. And his offer of grace and mercy and forgiveness extends, it's freely available to all who come to him. And if the people in Micah's day had that promise made more sure, and they did, we have it even more sure through the death of Christ. The cross, the empty tomb are proof positive of our forgiveness, of our justification. And as we heard in our scripture lesson today, there is no one so far gone that the Lord would not suspend his steadfast love towards them, relentlessly calling them to repentance. He longs to have his people repent and return. He delights in steadfast love so much that he sent his only son for you. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you that it never ends, Lord God, that you have sent your Son to be the redemption, to be our sacrifice for us, Lord God. Thank you that you have sent him to take our punishment, our consequences for our sin, and he bore that all on the cross and that our sins, our iniquities, our, our transgressions have all been dealt with. Uh, they are cast into the depths of the sea because of Jesus. And Lord, help us to live our lives in that reality that we have been forgiven. As, as children of God, those who have received you, we have been forgiven. Let us never forget that. Lord, your mercy is infinite. <laughs> there is no one who can compare to you. Father, it's in your name we pray. Amen.